CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 2 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss the surprising science of creativity. We begin with a fascinating look into how your brain creates reality around you and assigns meaning to things that often have no meaning at all. Then we examine the unlikely relationship between doubt, ambiguity, and creativity. We ask how you can chip away at your assumptions so that you can open up spaces of possibility to be more creative. We explore the foundation of asking truly great questions and examine the way that doubt can be a powerful force for unleashing creative insights and more with our guest, Dr. Bo Lotto. Do you need more time, time for work, time for thinking and reading, time for the people in your life, time to accomplish your goals? This was the number one problem our listeners outlined, and we created a new video guide that you can get completely for free when you sign up and join our email list. It's called How You Can Create Time for the Things That Really Matter in Life. You can get it completely for free when you sign up and join the email list at successpodcast.com. You're also going to get exclusive content that's only available to our email subscribers. We recently pre-released an episode and an interview to our email subscribers a week before it went live to our broader audience. And that had tremendous implications because there was a limited offer in there with only 50 available spots that got eaten up by the people who were on the email list first. With that same interview, we also offered an exclusive opportunity for people on our email list to engage one-on-one for over an hour with one of our guests in a live exclusive interview just for email subscribers. There's some amazing stuff that's available only to email subscribers that's only going on if you subscribe and sign up to the email list. You can do that by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're driving around right now, if you're out and about and you're on the go, you don't have time, just text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. 
In our previous episode, we discussed the science of talent. We looked at how great talent is built into the very physical structure of the brain itself, explored the incredible importance of striving at the edge of your ability and staying there as long as possible, the vital importance of making mistakes in the learning process, how a group of kindergartners beat a bunch of CEOs at a simple team building exercise, a powerful tool Navy SEALs use to make better decisions that you can apply in your life right now, and much more with our previous guest, Daniel Coyle. If you want to unlock your true potential, listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with Bo. Today, we have another unique guest on the show, Dr. Bo Lotto. Bo is a neuroscientist, author, and the founder of the Lab of Misfits. His studies in the science of human perception have led him to work in several fields, including education, the arts, business, and more. Bo has given multiple TED Talks, spoken to companies such as Google, and his work has been featured on the BBC, PBS, National Geographic, Big Think, and much more. Bo, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks for having me on. Well, we're very excited to have you on the show today. I know your work is, is really, really fascinating, and I think the listeners are really going to enjoy it. I'd love to start out with kind of a simple premise, but I think there, in many ways kind of underpins a lot of what you talk and write about. Do we see reality as it really is? Do we see the world as it, it truly is? No, we don't. But this isn't postmodern relativism. So the world exists. It's just that we didn't evolve to see it. We see something else. In fact, in some sense, be useful to see it. And the reason why we don't is because we're ever separated from that world. We have no direct access to the physical world other than through our senses. And the problem with that is that our, the senses receive information from that world that is wholly ambiguous. So your listeners can do a little, little experiment on themselves. They can hold up their finger, one of their fingers in front of their face, and they can line up that finger to something that's in the distance that's much larger, and they move it further and towards until the finger and that object are the same size. And of course, they're not the same size. But the point is that at that moment in time, the information arising from that object in the world and your finger were, as far as your eyes were concerned, were exactly the same size. And the problem is that's the only information your brain gets when it comes to seeing the world. So everything that your brain is receiving from the world is inherently meaningless because it could literally mean anything. And what's more, that information doesn't come with instructions. It doesn't tell you what to do. So one of the things that people need to remember is that in a very fundamental and deep sense, data by itself is pointless. There is no inherent value in any piece of data because it could literally mean anything. And that's true at the most fundamental level of what your, of what your brain is dealing with. So tell me more about that idea. And, you know, why is it that the kind of raw input that our senses collect about the world is not, you know, as you sort of put it is, why is that pointless? Well, it's, it's meaningless because it conflates multiple aspects of the world. So it's, it's a multiplier as opposed to additive. So you take size and distance, you put those two things together, they multiply. It's like being given the equation x times y equals z, and you're given z, and you have to solve for x without ever knowing y. You know, it's mathematically impossible, because there's an infinite number of combinations in x and y that can give you z. So you know, you conflate reflectance and illumination or amplitude of sound and distance. So something that is loud and far away can give rise to the exact same stimulus that is something quiet and up close. So that's the reason why information is ambiguous, because it literally conflates multiple aspects of the real world objects. But even more than that, those objects don't tell, even if we could see them directly, which we can't, 
they're forever separate from us in terms of their behavioral value. They don't, like I said, they don't come with instructions. They don't tell us what to do. And so your brain has to rely on another piece of information that doesn't exist in the moment. And that piece of information is history. So the functional structure of your brain is literally a physical manifestation of your past interactions with the world. That's effectively what your brain is representing, the structure of your brain representing. And not just your history, the history of your culture, the history of your family, the history of your organization, your business, or in fact, even your evolutionary history. So you can really make a, a real argument that most of your life happened without you even there. You, know, you inherited most of that experience. And it's through that experience that your brain is making sense of meaningless data and making it meaningful. So in essence, the brain collects kind of this raw, this raw input and we kind of impose context or meaning onto that information to ascribe to it some sort of relevance to what we're doing or the way that we perceive reality. Yeah, we call it sort of the behavioral significance of data or the empirical significance of data. So your, your brain is, in, is inherently empirical. So evolution, learning, development are all different ways, different time frames, and using different mechanisms to do the same thing, which is to shape the structure of your brain according to trial and error. And as a consequence, what happens is, you know, what, during evolution, say, when you approach something that had, say, a low intensity, well, that could have been a hole. It could have been a darkly painted surface. You know, originally your brain had no idea knowing which, which was which. And so for those who actually stepped into it and it happened to be a hole, they got selected out. So your brain then has effectively encoded biases and assumptions because that's really what history gives you are your biases and assumptions. And those biases and assumptions keep you alive. Every time you take a step, your brain has hundreds of assumptions that the floor is not going to give way, the legs aren't going to give way, right? They are essential for your survival. But what was once useful may no longer be useful, which is why your brain also evolved to adapt. So we're constantly having to update our biases and assumptions. But a common misperception or misconception is that while we think we might have sometimes biased assumptions, but other times not. In fact, you always do. You can never step outside your biased assumptions. So the whole idea of stepping outside the box is a silly idea because all you do is you step inside a new box. You can never leave them. So it creates a fundamental question about how we could actually ever see differently. But that's what history is giving you. It's giving you biased assumptions. And it's through that that you construct what you see. So what would you say to somebody who you know comes back and says, well, there is kind of an objective real world, you know, beyond my own perception? Well, of course, there's a real world. So there is a physical world. There's a physical world literally of energy, right? What your senses are detecting is energy in terms of, say, electromagnetic radiation or vibrations that your eardrums are detecting. So there's literal energy and chemicals in the case of your uh, taste buds or your, or your olfactory system. So that's what you're detecting, of course. So that exists. And it's generated by stuff in the world. It's just that, again, we don't see it. So take, for instance, color. Color makes a very good point. So color comes from light. Light, by definition, is the part of the electromagnetic spectrum between four and 700 nanometers that we're sensitive to. Well, actually, the amount of electromagnetic radiation out there is massive compared to that tiny window that we see. So we see only a very small part of the whole possible spectrum. So that's one point. The other point is that it's a linear space from four to seven hundred, four to seven hundred, so small to large. But our perception of color is not a line. 
So at one end, we might see red. At the other end, we see blue. Now, perceptually, red and blue are actually quite similar to each other. In fact, they're more similar to each other than they are to green, which means our perception of color is, in fact, a circle, right? Red, green, blue to yellow. And, but the light that's generated is not circular. It's a line. What's more is we break that circle into categories of color. Again, red, green, blue, and yellow. But there's nothing categorical about light spectra. But it was actually useful to see four colors. And one of the possible reasons for doing so is that if you think of cartography, when you're making a map, you need at least four colors to make sure no two countries share the same color. Right. So it's called the four color map problem. So in other words, we're solving these problems in a way that's useful, but not necessarily realistic. And another perfect example is pain. Pain is not the perception of pain is not a function of the world. There's nothing in the world that is painful. Right. Pain doesn't exist without us there to sense it. Pain is, is the perceived value or importance of a stimulus. It tells you to avoid. But the, there's nothing inherently painful about an object. So how do things like sort of optical and auditory illusions sort of interact with this thesis? So what they demonstrate is that a number of points. What they don't demonstrate is far too often people will use illusions, I think, in a, in a fairly superficial, trite way, which is to say that our perceptions are being fooled. And your perception is not being fooled. So this might seem a contradiction to what I said. They're only illusions if you assume that the brain evolved to see the world accurately. And by definition, an illusion is to see it differently from the way it really is. So if you evolve to see the world accurately, then you're seeing illusions. But the argument here is that we didn't evolve to see the world accurately. We evolved to see it usefully. And what evolution gives you is not accuracy. Evolution gives you utility. So in that sense, you kind of have two options. Either everything you see is an illusion or nothing is. Your perceptions are not fragile. They're robust. It's just that they're not seeing the world in any sort of literal sense. They're seeing it in a utilitarian sense. And that's incredibly useful, right? If there were a one-to-one -one relationship, it would be between our perceptions and the world. It would mean that we had no way of actually adapting or changing our behavior. But instead, we can constantly update and see the world differently. We can constantly adapt. So there's actually tremendous freedom in understanding that your perceptions are not of accuracy. And illusions make that point very strongly. What's more, they demonstrate of where the perception is constructed, which is that it's construction, constructed empirically, it's constructed in your history. So in our own work, we've shown that we can take illusions and we can make one more or less consistent with different types of what we call empirical significance, and we can either increase or decrease the illusion accordingly. So we can make it more or less consistent with different kinds of experiences, or we can even create new experiences to create new illusions. So in that sense, language is an illusion, right? You take a word, you take the word light, and you put it in new context and you change the meaning. So if you put it with a lighthouse with a space in between, that means one thing. But if you put it as lighthouse with no space in between, you have yet another word, another meaning. That is effectively illusion. The same stimulus giving rise to different meanings depending on what surrounds it, all of which is grounded in your history of what it meant before. And so this, this kind of context that we bring to bear when we're constructing our perceptions of reality, you touched on this a little bit, but, but where does that come from and how do we think about all of the things that are kind of shaping our perceptions of reality? The context comes from history. So there's no inherent value in context. 
I'll give you an example. So if I give you a hieroglyph, right? I presume you're not an Egyptologist, but tell me if you are. So if I give you a hieroglyph, that probably doesn't mean anything to you. It doesn't mean anything to me, right? But if I put it in a new context of hieroglyphs, it changes the, its meaning. But you still don't know what it means because that context is also just as ambiguous to you. So in that sense, the concept of a context is arbitrary. Right, the decision of what's a stimulus and what's its surround is meaningless. So the context is as meaningless as is the stimulus. What's relevant is what they, how they relate that to the past, to what this meant for your behavior in the past, and what the past gave you is not the history of what the thing turned out to be, because you never have access to this. We're not like artificial neural networks being trained by Google. Because in that context, you have the computer scientist, when the neural network gets trained, and it's giving you an answer, and the computer scientist says, no, that's not right, this is the real answer, and then it, what we call back-propagates the error, right? And it's because it's giving you an absolute error. But in our experience, we don't have that, right? We don't have a God that tells us, actually, you got it wrong by this amount. What we have is behavior. What we have is whether or not it enabled us to survive. And so that's what context is doing. It's relating the present to the significance of the past. And again, not just your past. It could be your evolutionary history's past. Right? It could be the past that you inherited from your culture. Now, I think there's a really good example that you that you shared of this, I think, in your Google talk, which we'll throw into the show notes as well. But you know, it's hard to demonstrate in some ways the podcast because so many of the examples and things you use are visual. But there's like this image of uh, a circle a little dot that was like inside of a box and there was a triangle that was like coming into the box and like moving towards it right and so in in and of itself it's basically irrelevant but it, but you can impose the context that this is like a a horror movie where the dot is being you know slowly hunted down by the triangle yeah that's right so it was a video that was made in the mid 1940s and so this video made in the 1940s and what happens is that you have two triangles in a circle, one larger triangle, a small triangle, and a, and a circle. And of course, they don't mean anything until you put them into motion. And as soon as you put them into motion, people watching it can't but help project a meaning onto these shapes. They start hating the big circle, uh, sorry, the big triangle, and they start feeling bad for the little triangle. And then suddenly, after the big triangle beats up on the little one, it moves over very sort of slowly, opens this sort of line drawing door and goes into this larger square. And it looks like it's going to go after a little circle. And everyone starts worrying for the circle. Right? And then during my talks, I actually stop it just before the triangle does anything. And everyone's like, what happens to the circle? Right? But of course, none of that actually exists. All we've done is we've put it into motion. And through that motion, you then recognize meaning in the motion. And that meaning isn't an inherent value of the motion itself. It's only a consequence of what was useful to see, which is why you could argue we have a fear of slithering. We come into the world with a fear of slithering. Why? Because that is a stimulus that evoked fear for good reason in the past. I mean, we can, I can give you a visual example for your audience where they can imagine in their minds two different shapes, right? So I'll read the, I'll read the minds of, your audio, of all the members of your audience with this, okay? So I'm going to predict the words that they're going to give to arbitrary shapes that they're going to construct. So one of the shapes is imagine a line drawing with, uh, that's drawn by, say, a black pen in your mind 
And this has, say, multiple points on it, quite jaggedy multiple points, seven, eight points, okay? The other shape has the same number of protrusions, but they're rounded, more like a cloud, right? So now you have these two shapes in your mind. Now, they don't have names. They're arbitrary shapes. We're going to give you two words. The first one is kiki, and the second one is boo-boo. Now, which of those shapes, which has no name, is kiki, and which of those shapes is boo-boo? And everyone will say that the sharp shape is kiki and the rounded shape is boo-boo. And the deep question is why? And it has everything to do with pain, right? Your perception of pain. Because if I give you the words of love and hate, everyone will say the sharp shape is hate and the rounded shape is love. And if I say hate and I prick your finger, activate the same part of your brain, which is about pain, because hate is a painful perception. So what you're doing is you're actually comparing the meaning of the information, not the information itself. That's the basis of metaphor. And I love this sort of Kiki and Boo Boo example, because when I saw those two images, especially immediately, it seems so obvious that sort of the sharp, jagged, you know, shape is Kiki and the sort of rounded blob like shape is Boo Boo. And yet it's completely arbitrary. It's completely arbitrary, of course. I mean, there's nothing meaningful about I mean, there's no even meaning in the word hate. And in fact, some people could say, well, these sounds are sharp. Well, then I can give you the word odio, right? And for all your native Spanish speakers, when if they ask the same question in their mind, which of these shapes is odio, they'll say it's the, the sharp shape. Why? Because odio means hate, even though it's a rounded sound. So again, we're comparing and we're matching and making relationships to the meaning of data, not the data. And again, that, that meaning is a historical meaning. And I love these, the kind of shape examples because they're so arbitrary, right? They're literally sort of just geometric shapes moving around or in the case of Kiki and Boo Boo, sort of static. And yet we naturally kind of impose and bring to bear all of our kind of past experiences and create, in some cases, kind of a narrative and all of this sort of information about what's going on. And yet there's, there's actually nothing really there. Absolutely. And you can make the same argument for everything that you and I are saying right now. Everything that we're saying right now is inherently meaningless. There is no meaning in anything we're saying. Your listeners are actually constructing the meaning in their heads. In fact, we're doing it ourselves. And when we think about shapes and the meaning of shapes, you can think of the shape of a face and the shape of expressions of a face. Because in the same way, we have no direct access to the reflectance of an object. We have no direct access to another person. We can measure their what and their where and their when, but we can never measure their why. We can never measure why they do what they do. We can never be inside their head, which means that everything that someone else is doing, you are constructing the meaning of what they do based on your history of experience, your biases, your assumptions. You can never measure their why, so you project their why. In the same way you color a surface, you color another person. So every personality that you perceive is literally inside you projected outward. You're coloring another person based on the arbitrary information that you're receiving. You know, it's funny uh, that I've kind of had a, this is sort of tangentially related, but I also think really underscores that point that, you know, in many cases, the way you interact and experience other people is sort of a mirror of your own perceptions. There's this email that I've sent out to, to tens of thousands of people. And it's this really simple email. It's sort of a, hey, I introduced myself, all this stuff. And the responses, I'm actually going to write an article about this because it's so ridiculous. But the responses I get to this one email are complete polar opposites. Some people will 
you know, be incredibly thankful, grateful. Hey, thank you so much. Wow, I can really sense you're such a good person. This is awesome. And it'll literally on the other end, as people will be like cursing me out, telling me I'm a scumbag, like get, you know, get out of my inbox. I mean, it's the same text to thousands of people. And yet their responses couldn't be more different. Yeah. I mean, that's, of course, why we have things like emojis, because we're trying to layer in because you can't have intonation in text. I mean, that's what brilliant writers are able to do. But also, that's the beauty of poetry. The beauty of poetry is to create a certain level of ambiguity that enables people to construct the meaning themselves and to reflect onto that. But the point is that it's not that we sometimes do this. We always are doing it. We're always doing these interpretations. And there's tremendous power in that awareness, because it's only in having that awareness that you actually have the possibility of freedom, of actually have the possibility of doing things differently. And actually, that's what I wanted to come back to is this idea that this sort of conclusion that because our perceptions are sort of arbitrarily imposed on reality, we can we can update and adapt those perceptions. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, first of all, they're not, it's not arbitrary. I mean, this is, again, postmodern relativism. It's not that everything is equivalent. Some things are better than others. It's just that you don't know what they are a priori. And it's that the information doesn't come and tell you. You have to figure that out yourself. And this is what happens when kids come into the world. They're, they're figuring it out themselves. So, I mean, I'll, to sort of come to your question in a sort of slightly roundabout way, where there was a wonderful experiment where you had two kittens, recently born, eyes just open. And you have one kitten that's running on the ground, perfectly fine, and it is physically connected to another kitten that's actually suspended in a basket. And the point of the experiment is that wherever the one on the ground goes, the one in the basket also goes because it pulls it along. And after a period of time, you take the two kittens and you test their vision. And the one on the ground, well, it seems perfectly fine, just as you expect. But what about the one in the basket? It's had effectively the same visual experience, same visual history of the one on the ground. And the answer is that it's blind. It can't see. And why can't it see? Because it's never been able to physically interact with the sources of meaningless information and make meaning from it. Your brain does not make meaning by passively receiving content. It makes meaning by physically engaging with the world. That's where your brain lives. It lives in the physical world. You know, we so often forget that a brain evolved in a body and a body in our world. Silicon Valley keeps forgetting this. We have millions and millions of years of evolution of making meaning by physical engagement. And the reason is because that's how your brain can actually get feedback. And feedback is essential for its synapses, for its brain connections to be made and remade. And the reason why it has to do that is because the world changes. The world is dynamic constantly updating, the constantly updating, I call it redefining normality, is because what was once useful may no longer be useful. The biases that we used to have, which were useful at one point, may no longer be useful, and yet it's still constraining our behavior. Your brain never makes a big jump. I can't get from one side of the room to the other without passing through the space in between. The same is true for your thoughts and your ideas, right? All you do is you take a small step to the next most likely possible. And what is next most likely possible is determined by your biases and assumptions. There might be a great idea that's far away in your space, but you can't even see it. You're just going to take a small step. So the only way to see differently, if everything you're doing is a reflex grounding your history of biases, how could you ever see differently? And the answer is change your assumptions and you'll change your perceptions. 
because you'll actually change the space of possibility and therefore the thing that sits right next to you. And the way you do that is by physically engaging with the world. So I think that before we get into kind of the how we actually change our assumptions, I think you highlighted a really important point from your work, which is this idea that to the sort of from an external perception, creativity can seem almost magical because the the gap between these two connections seems really broad to a sort of a spectator, but it's it's actually not to somebody who's sort of been expanding their their sort of space of adjacent possible. That's right. So we typically think of creativity as, you know, putting two things that are far apart together. Again, this concept that your brain makes big jumps and this moment of insight, aha, right? Well, that's not really what's happening. I'd argue that there's nothing creative about creativity. Creativity is only created from the outside, not from the inside. So when you see someone putting two things that are far apart together, it's for you that they're far apart together, right? It's, but they are making a small step to the next most likely possible. The difference is your space is a possibility. They have different assumptions, different biases, because they had a different history than you. So that's why we see, wow, how did they do that? Well, they're not. They're making a small step to the next most likely possible. But that means what creativity is, is again, to make small steps, but to change what's possible by changing your biases and assumptions. And that, if that's true, then what makes creativity hard is the process of changing bias and assumptions, not the process of linking things that are far apart together. So it shifts the sort of the focus of the task, which actually makes creativity far more accessible. Too often creativity research is they'll do research on people who are creative and they say, this is what it's like to be creative, suggesting that the answer is, well, if you want to be creative, be like them. Or that creativity is only accessible to the artists, etc. No, creativity is accessible to everybody. What's hard, again, is for some reason what's hard is changing your bias and assumptions. You know, that reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever read the book, Stephen Johnson's book, Where Big Ideas Come From. It's a really interesting read. And he, he talks about this notion. He studies Darwin and all this other stuff. But he talks about this notion of what he calls the adjacent possible, right? Which is the same idea that it's, it's not that there's these sort of giant creative leaps, but it's basically that it's kind of this slow, constant kind of iteration that eventually looks like a giant creative leap. That's right. So from the outside, you don't see that progression. But then the question that's not answered there is the progression of what? What is progressing? In one sense, there's, there's sort of, there are a number of ways of answering that. One is, when you take a step, what's the reference of, your, of that step? Is it your previous step? Is it the step of everybody else? So when you're deviating, all you're doing is you're making reference to your previous step, not the step of everybody else. And what you find is accidentally or otherwise, you go in a different direction. To do it for the sake of it is not so interesting. But to do it because you're following a passion, you're following something you care about, you're making reference to your previous step, you just happen to find yourself going in different directions. Not always. Sometimes you might find yourself going in the same direction, and that might be a good idea, because that might be a great solution. The beauty of doing it this way, though, is you know why you're there, as opposed to just copying. Because this is basically a search algorithm. You're searching your space of possibility by making reference to your previous step. And then suddenly you look up and, whoa, no one's around you, right? Because you're following your own trajectory. You've now deviated. But you've not done anything particularly special. What you've done is you made reference to your previous step and you've challenged your assumptions and biases through the process of asking questions. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? 
Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So let's get into the the kind of specifics around doing that. How do we think about expanding our space of possibility and how do we think about kind of updating those assumptions and biases or changing them? Well, I mean, it's a question because it's this conundrum where if everything I'm doing in, a, in, in the moment, I have, have no free over. It's just a reflex. When I gave the Kiki Boo Boo and the Two Shapes example, people couldn't help but, but make actions. They would have felt like they were making a free will choice, but it was already in a sense predetermined. So it feels like, how is it possible to ever do that? And again, the answer is, to, is that nothing interesting begins with knowing. It begins with not knowing. It begins with doubt. It begins with a question. So if you want to shift from A to B, the first step is not B. The first step from going from A to B is to go from A to not A. You get a stimulus, and your brain automatically generates a reflexive meaning. 
the first step is to not generate that meaning, to step into uncertainty, step into not A. The problem is we hate uncertainty. We we literally hate uncertainty in almost everything we do, right? Because if you weren't sure that was a predator, it was too late. Your brain evolved to take what is uncertain and make it certain, to take what is meaningless and make it meaningful. Because dying was easy. If you weren't able to predict usefully, you got selected out. So to be in a situation of uncertainty is literally to increase the probability of death during evolution, which is why we then get these behavioral, physiological, emotional responses to uncertainty, which means escape, get out of here, create certainty. In fact, in some sense, when we go, one of the useful responses to fear in some sense is anger, because what happens with anger is you become morally judgmental, you become completely certain in your view, you feel better. But though a natural response it is completely devoid of creativity. It's how you then step into uncertainty and exist there. But that's one of the deepest problems is that we hate uncertainty. The other problem is that so many of us aren't aware that we have all these biases and assumptions that everything we do is grounded in them. And again, not always to disadvantage, usually to advantage, but we lack the awareness that everything we do is grounded in biases and assumptions, most of which we inherited. And even if we accept that premise, which illusions demonstrate fundamentally, we don't even know what they are. We're almost always blind to why we do what we do, which is why often marketing surveys don't work because people give answers that they would like to be true or what they hope to be true in the future. But we often don't know why we do what we do, which is why the best person to reveal your biases to you is usually not you, it's usually someone else. So, so in fact, that's what sometimes the best technologies do, but we can get into that in a moment. But either way, once you accept that you have bias and assumptions, much of what you inherited, and even if you can identify what they are, the biggest challenge is to question them. And that's incredibly scary for people. And, and I include myself and all that, of course. I mean, that's what, in fact, it is scary for any living system. That is the fundamental challenge that living brains evolved to solve, which is the challenge of uncertainty. And you can argue that's, in a sense, this, this need for closure the need for certainty is so strong. This is why Game of Thrones is successful, right? Because Game of Thrones finishes on a minor chord every week. If it finished on a major chord, the show would be over, right? We need that closure. In fact, before, you know, when Mozart would go to sleep, he would go to the piano and he'd go, da, 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 da. And then his father couldn't deal with the fact that the chord didn't finish. So he'd have to go and hit that last note to finish the chord before he'd go to sleep. And you could even make an argument that Uber is successful, has been successful, not simply because they enable us to get a taxi you know, easier. It's because they tell you when the taxi is going to arrive. And you're late and you've got five minutes going up. You don't know when it's going to arrive. But if I say, don't worry, it's going to be there in five minutes. In fact, I'm even going to show you where it is. Your cortisol levels stay low. You don't get stressed, right? We just hate uncertainty and irony is that's the only place we can go if we're going to see differently. So how do we kind of step into uncertainty or cultivate more uncertainty in our lives? It's <laughs> a great question. Well, fortunately, because it's such an important place to go, evolution gave us a solution. So your listeners can think of, you know, what's, what's the one behavior, class of behaviors, defined by a single word that has four letters, where they actually love uncertainty? It's not that they tolerate it, they love it. And the answer is play, right? 
play is a solution to uncertainty. That's why it evolved, right? Because play is a, is a way of being. It's a way of interacting with the world. It celebrates uncertainty. It celebrates uh, possibility, diversity. It's inherently cooperative, and it's in what we call intrinsically motivating. What I mean by that is almost everything you do, so intrinsically motivating means that the reward is the thing itself. So you think of work. You work to get money for most people, right? You do one thing to get another. The reward of play is play. What's the reward of skiing? It's skiing. And this, and this is also true for sex, right? We have these emotional responses to perpetuate the thing happening. And because play is so essential. Now, if you add intention to play, because play has no intention, what you get is science. Science is nothing other than play with intention. And I'd argue that anything that is creative is effectively the state of being that is play with intention. And the beginning of play, the beginning of stepping into uncertainty, there's another perception that evolution gave us which is the perception of awe and wonder. And we know we've been doing recent research on, on awe and wonder, as have a number of labs around the world, including one of the main labs in Berkeley. And what we and they have demonstrated is that when you experience awe and wonder, a number of things happen inside your head, but you feel small and connected to the world. You're surprised, and beyond surprise, you think, this is amazing. I want to understand this. You want to step forward. But with awe, you have to change your reference frame if you're going to have that understanding. So it's as if evolution gave us the perception to step forward, to reduce our ego, and to have the desire to know. So let's dig into the concept of play a little bit more. And, and how do we you know, think about sort of adding an intention to something and, and, and sort of making it playful, if that makes sense? Well, the adding intention is hugely important. Because, again, the, what's required to step into uncertainty is such a potentially scary space to be that you have to have a strong desire to be there. And what's more, a lot of our bias and assumptions that exist in ourselves or in our culture, if you think about a meme, a meme of just is nothing other than a cultural assumption. And these things have momentum. They have tremendous weight behind them. If you think about your brain, when your brain gets a stimulus, that stimulus generates a pattern of activity in your brain, which is effectively what we call a tractor state. Think of a whirlpool. A whirlpool is a tractor state, arises from the interaction of interacting water molecules. Well, we get to an equivalent thing happening inside your head. You get a steady state of activity that arises from the interaction between your brain cells. Now, every time you get that same stimulus, generate that same meaning, you're deepening that attractor state in the same way you're deepening the, say, depth and strength of a whirlpool. And when you do that, it requires more and more energy to ever disrupt that, that stable state. Well, that energy requires desire. It requires care. And so one of the most important things is to find out and discover what it is that you care about that is bigger than yourself. And we know from research, ours and others, that we will go further we will tolerate more pain. We'll walk further across a desert for someone else than for ourselves. There are many stories where someone was, say, playing crash in a desert, and they're trying to get across. And it was the fear of not dying, but the fear of their loved ones finding them dead 
that drove them on more than the fear of their own death. So again, it's another perception that we've evolved to help us maintain that momentum to change that attractor state. So when thinking about this, it's about care. It's about caring for something that's larger than yourself. So I want to kind of zoom it into something really specific. It, you know, let's say I had a, a challenge in my life or my work or something like that that I wanted to address more creatively. How do I kind of concretely bring these two ideas of play and intention together into sort of solving that challenge? Well, the first one, I suppose, is to ask a question, but ask a meaningful question. So too often we ask the question, well, first of all, you have to adopt that mindset. And you have to adopt a mindset of entering conflict in a new way. So conflict, as I define it, has to do with engaging a situation that's different from what you expect, right? You're, you're now in conflict. So if you want to change something, you're now in conflict, conflict with yourself, for instance. Now, normally, when if you and I are in conflict, too often we've been trained and experienced that my aim is to prove that you're wrong and to shift you towards me. The problem is you're trying to do exactly the opposite, prove that I'm wrong and to shift me towards you. So notice that conflict is usually set up to win but not learn because you only ever learn if you move, right? It's a crazy strategy. Evolution does not solve conflict in this way. Evolution is about movement. So first of all, you have to adopt a, stat, a state where you have the desire to move in conflict which means you have to enter conflict in a different way. And actually, once people understand how perception works, you're almost foolish. In fact, you are foolish if you enter conflict with answers, enter conflict with certainty, when instead you should be entering conflict with questions, entering conflict with doubt, with uncertainty, because now you actually have the possibility of moving. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, what is it that you're going to move? And too often we ask questions that are information-based questions, like what, where, and when. These are things that we can measure. They have a certain level of certainty about them, but they're not actually terribly meaningful questions because they create data. As we know, data by itself is pointless. What you want to better understand is why, because what you really are after is not a rule. Rules are very efficient. They're useful in cases of efficiency, but they're specific to a context. What you want is a principle because principles transcend context. And you get to principles by understanding why something does what it does, not what it does. When you do a Google search, what Google really wants to know is not what you're searching for, but why you're doing the search. And they use keywords as proxies for the why. So that's the other thing. Find out what you care about. Have the desire to move, to shift, and ask the right question. Ask the question of why. And then usually engage other people. Because the most interesting collaborations are between naive and expert. And you, sh you can shift between naive and expert in your own mind. Experts are super efficient, but they're crap at asking a good question because they know what they're not supposed to ask. Whereas people who are naive are great at asking questions, but they don't know they're good questions. What's remarkable is that an expert can recognize a good question when asked. They just often can't ask. So it's a wonderful combination. So that's the, the collaboration. And when people experience conf uh, growth through conflict, there's an elation that they feel. We love that feeling because far more interesting from shifting is to expand, is to expand your space of possibility because now you have more degrees of freedom in which to move at any point in time. So looking kind of 
at a, at a really granular level, how do you think about, or how do you sort of in your own life start to kind of celebrate doubt and start to, you know, chip away at some of your own assumptions and be more adaptable? <laughs> it's hard for me as well, but I actually think it is literally an exercise. Just like you're, you know, you get stronger muscles by using them, you get a stronger brain by you by using it. You know, twenty let's see, two let's see, twenty percent of the energy that you consume goes to two percent of your body mass. Your brain is incredibly expensive. When you see differently, you literally are growing in some cases new brain cells. You're definitely growing more complexity of the brain cells that already exist. You're reforming connections. I mean, when two grandmaster chess players sit next to each other and play a game of chess, they literally burn thousands of calories by sitting and thinking. Thinking is expensive. It's hard, which is why so often we don't do it. We try to avoid it. So engaged in that process of of thinking is a very difficult thing but we can actually find such value when we expand our space of possibility so i just continue to remind myself of the pleasure that i personally get when i when i move from where i am and i get tremendous pleasure even in conflict with my wife when i realize what an idiot i've been right <laughs> because Wow, that's something I didn't know before. And I get tremendous pleasure from that realization. In my view, to be liberal conservatives has nothing to do with your political space. It's whether or not you're willing to move from wherever you are. And I don't understand why we wouldn't have that desire to move. Because we get such elation when we do. So I think, and tell me if this is incorrect, but it seems like a kind of a key piece of what you're describing is this idea that when we encounter any sort of issue, challenge, conflict, et cetera, where we want to kind of bring creativity into the fold, a really key piece of it is is not entering with kind of the certainty of trying to prove a certain point or prove, you know, that you're correct or validate your existing assumptions. It's much more about bringing kind of doubt and, and, and an awareness that and a humbleness that you want to find out what's really true. That's right. So creativity begins with humility, right? It begins, again, it begins with not knowing. It doesn't begin with arrogance, that's for sure. And if you think about design, even the design process, most of the design begins with a problem. And then they iterate to try to find a better solution. Now, that iteration is nothing other than an empirical process, which is effectively science. But science doesn't begin with iteration, and science doesn't begin with a problem. The best of science begins with a question. Because if you come up with a great solution to a problem that's completely meaningless, who really cares? So what's really hard and a real challenge is finding a good question. And we don't even teach children. We too often don't teach children how to ask a question, what's, what's much less what a good question is. Most questions are not good. It's great to ask questions, but not all questions are good. And what defines a good question will usually to doubt what I assume to be true already. But that's very hard because often I don't even know what my biases and assumptions are. So how can I even question it? So really what we're, we're after is asking really good questions. And what iteration is about is not about iterating to better solutions. It's about iterating to better questions. Because if I ask a brilliant question and come up with an answer, I usually have actually increased uncertainty because I usually create more questions in that solution. So design thinking should be starting with questions and finding out what those questions are that you either care about deeply what another person cares about deeply or what 
what is relevant to the situation or what even the organization is about. I think that makes a ton of sense and, and kind of ties back in this whole, you know, conversation we've been having about uncertainty in many ways, questions, it seems like are an incredibly powerful tool for sort of cracking open the door of uncertainty or possibility and bringing a healthy amount of sort of humility to the questioning process can really help open up spaces of possibility that ultimately underpin creative thinking and creative insight. That's right. And again, the, what the best questions do is they actually expand your space because again, it's not necessarily about shifting. You know, if you're on a line, all you can do is go forward and forward and away. But if you're on a, on a surface, now you can move in two dimensions. If you're in a cube, you can move in three dimensions. That's what it is to be adaptable. That's what it is to be open. That's what evolution does. I mean, another strategy is to because really what you're what you really want to do when it comes to innovation because innovation has two sides it has creativity and efficiency it's not being on one side or the other that matters you know if a bus is coming at you i don't want people to stop listening to this and go out into the street and say oh i wonder if i could see this differently right you want to get out of the way as fast as possible it's just that we live life too often as if everything is a bus Wisdom is knowing when to be on one side of the edge of chaos or the other, right? It's being at the edge of chaos on average. So an innovation is actually the cycle between efficiency and creativity. So quite sort of literally in some sense, what happens is often companies or individuals start with creativity and then they move quite quickly from creativity to efficiency. What they're doing is they're going from a high space of possibility to a lower space of possibility. They're decreasing dimensionality. That's to increase efficiency. The problem is they'll then often stay there. And then the world will change, and they keep trying to maximize efficiency. What they need to do is expand the space again, i.e. they need to increase the dimensionality of the search space again. That might mean add a new person, increase the diversity of the group that you're working with. The best solutions in a complex system exist in a complex search space, not in a simple search space. So now you increase the dimensionality, you add new individuals, you increase the diversity of the group. You find new creative solution, and then you will go efficiency again. You now re- you now retract, go to a, a more efficient group of people, etc. And it's a cycle. So, for listeners who want to sort of concretely implement the principles and ideas we've talked about today, what would be kind of one action item or sort of piece of homework that you would give them to to test or apply some of these assumptions? It would be uh, <laughs> often <laughs> I, I've given you know quite a few talks, and I remember this one person coming up to me afterwards and say, oh, I'm so glad you told me this because my wife has so many assumptions and biases. She's always saying this, that, and the other. You know, I can't wait and go home and tell her about all her biases and assumptions. And I'm thinking, you really missed the point (laughs) because you're absolutely right, but he's missing the point that he too has all those biases and assumptions that are being projected onto her. So first, take ownership of the fact that you have these biases and assumptions. And your first exercise is to engage in the person that you care about with a question, with an assumption the next time you're in a conflict. That's one, that's one exercise. Another exercise is simply to practice going from A to not A, to let go, to practice letting go of reflexive meanings. What would be an example of that? Take a cold shower, and you're in the cold shower. Normally, we feel, ah, oh, this is uncomfortable. Well, that's being an A. That's having a reflexive response to the meaning of the coldness. Try doing this. Feel the water. Feel it is cold. But try not to attach a meaning to it. Just feel the water and feel it cold. Don't attach 
the significance of uncomfortableness, but also don't try to pretend that it's not. Just feel it as neutral. And this is effectively what meditation is trying to do, right? It's trying to let you sit within not A, to let go of reflexive meaning. And a final other exercise is when we think about how we can actually change what we're going to do in the future, the way we do that is we change the meaning of what's happened in the past. So your brain is like a time machine. It's moving, constantly moving past, present, future. And while we can never change what happened, we can change the meaning of what happened. Because what I'm going to do in the future is the history of not what happened, but the history of those past meanings. I literally change my statistical history, which means I'll alter what And that's effectively what every story is doing, every therapy is doing, is getting you to re-mean the significance of what's happened in order to change what you're going to do in the future. And for listeners who want to be able to find you and, and your work online, what's the best place for them to go to find you? Well, so uh, we have a lab. We have a couple of companies as well. And so the lab and company are called the Lab of Misfits. And they can go online at www.labofmisfits.com. And of course, there are a number of talks, etc. And and the book Deviate. Or send me an email. And what's a good email for them to reach you? Bo at labofmisfits.com. My lab also is increasingly putting on events. We effectively turn my lab into a nightclub. And we measure everything in the experience. We call it the experiment. We create what we call experiential experiment. And the idea is that people have an experience and they walk away with a better understanding of themselves. And so they can keep track of where and when we do this. Perfect. Well, we'll make sure to include all of that in the show notes. Bo, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this wisdom and all these insights with the audience. Uh, fascinating conversation. And we really enjoyed having you on here. Thanks a lot. It was very fun. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. 
Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.